Well, we're getting into January 2024, good people. My name is Clifford Brooks, and this is Dante's Old South. Now, I'm not going to bore you with exposition because the show shall speak for itself. So let me get out of the way a big thank you to NPR and WUTC, Lucid House Publishing, the bespoke publisher of great literature countrywide. The Red Phone Booth, Swank Speakeasies in Georgia, Tennessee, and Texas. The Crown, a gluten-free restaurant in gorgeous Brasstown, North Carolina, just around the corner from the John C. Campbell Folk School. Now, let's get started with the good stuff and jump in with Poet Stuart DeShell. It is my divine pleasure to bring you this day, poet, author, and professor, the incomparable Stuart DeShell. Stuart, how are you doing, boss? Well, I'm doing really well, Clifford, uh, especially now talking to you. Always a great pleasure. Well, man, it's fantastic having you on the show. And it's been about two years since we last spoke. Um, catch us up on uh, the high uh, the high notes of what you've been doing lately. Well, I think since we last spoke, actually, I published a book in 2022, uh, The Lookout Man with the University of Chicago Press. And uh, I did a number of readings uh, for that. Uh, and so that was kind of an exciting uh, time, as exciting as it gets for a poet anyway. Uh, and uh, uh, last year... Uh, I uh, published in uh, April uh, this new book called Andalusian Visions, which I may have mentioned to you was in the offing before or was in preparation. And uh, it's essentially a book of several different paths, uh, um, artistic paths using the Andalusian landscape, um, literally as that, a landscape, a background. And it contains a poem of mine, um, photographs by the French filmmaker and photographer Cyril Kane, um, and um, a translation into French as well as original music by the Swiss composer Laurent Estepe. Well, I can't let you go any farther without reading us a piece of that. Do you mind sharing it with us? No, actually, my title poem isn't very long. I'll read it for you. It's uh, in eight short sections, and um, instead of calling them out, I'll just pause for a moment uh, between the sections. Right on. It's called uh, Lines of the Desert Bones, a Scenario. People cannot hide in the desert until their clothes get torn away by the wild dogs of the desert. First nose and mouth get bitten off by the wild dogs of the desert that eat the ass and genitals after ripping the clothes away from the flesh taken in pieces by the desert wind. Funny how one fears the night crossing the desert, music on the radio, the front seats sticking to the bare skin of thigh, blood contained, Hands on the wheel still in control, throat and lips and tongue, mouthing words, yet singing. Casting shadows used to bore me. I got along with a smile and a limp and a few bad jokes about my astonishment, finding words. Now at last I'm on my way to sediment among prehistoric creatures and volcanic oceanic 
mountains. Where in the desert can you find my bones, the same color as the desert, my bones, my most modest of selves, martyr bones, bones without ambition, lazy bones, wild dogs and the wind have gnawed down to. Each day I am missing, I become less, like the desert, once the sea, its floor alive, with plants and fish, an archive of fossils, no waves but the wind. I was a driver in the night, and had a flat and no spare, and I wandered from the highway up to the highest point to see if a town was on the horizon or smoke from a rancher's cabin. The wild dogs got me when I slid on the way down. I would like to say I was peaceful as I gave the dogs their feast and accepted their embrace and the teeth of their necessity at the fresh springs of my blood, but I screamed at no one that cared, think that once I wanted to be thin torn apart, was like nothing else. I was a singer in the car and sang of the desert. I sang but only to myself the loneliest of songs that lived with me forever in bar rooms and hotels, the rhythm of my bones, harmonica to the wind. Harmonica to the wind. Oh, my. It, it, now, this is the project that you're going to be. There's celebrations in Greensboro, North Carolina, and Paris, France, right? This is the same. Right. We did an event here in Greensboro because that's where the press, uh, Unicorn Press, is located. Uh, Unicorn Press uh, is a press from the 1960s from California that migrated to Greensboro and now is being edited by Andrew Salters, who makes these books by hand. He's a good guy. I like him too, dude. I do. Now, you have two other big publications that have come out uh, recently. Uh, one's poetry, one's essay. Let's break up the poetry for a second and uh, take up the essay. Uh, Adroit Journal published it. wondered if you might uh, tell us what it's about and perhaps read the first paragraph. Yeah, um, this is uh, about a, uh, it's a travel piece, one of a uh, number that I've been writing about France and uh, I guess the last time we talked, I was telling you about some of the ones that um, I had written uh, in, about Paris that had appeared in Terminus magazine. And uh, more recently, I've been writing about some other places. And among one of them is a town that I discovered for myself this summer uh, called Set. And uh, sure, I'll read the first paragraph. I'm a wild overachiever. I was probably not meant to write collections of poetry, but to make numbers collections from my father's friends back in Atlantic City. Having grown up in such a place, I have always been drawn to resort towns. It is not surprising, then, that in late adulthood, I wound up staying for a week in Set, France, on the Mediterranean coast near Montpellier. And then in this piece, I start framing it with, of course, the adventures of Henry James uh, that had uh, uh, 
occurred uh, in his travels uh, through France in the 19th century. And uh, he actually stopped and set. He never got out of the train station. He didn't eat a very agreeable meal at the buffet there. And he thought about a poem by Matthew Arnold, uh, which seems a little bit overblown to uh, today's uh, sensibilities. And so in this essay, I discover the town. And um, I also go to the graves, um, hence the title Graveyards by the Sea of this piece, uh, the graves of the French poet Paul Valéry, uh, dubbed by many the most important French poet of the 20th century, and the popular uh, singer-songwriter-slash-poet uh, Georges Brassens, who was also an actor in uh, many films of the 1950s and, uh, and 60s. And uh, both of their graves are indicative of their personalities and their aesthetics. Uh, Valerie's grave being at the heights of the city, even though it's called uh, the Cemetery by the Sea. And there's a beautiful view of the sea. It's on the top of the uh, town. Uh, Brassan's grave is kind of more close to the estuary there and the pond. And, uh, and much like himself, it's a place of uh, good humor. In one of his poems, he wishes that uh, uh, women uh, would change their bathing suits some um, in the shade behind his grave. Uh, right. There, that uh, would have some purpose for him in the afterlife. Now, as much as he'd wish some ladies would put themselves on exhibition, after the exhibition is a poem of yours that just got accepted by a, a small little collection, right? It's just, just this little bitty evident. Uh, who, who, who took it? Uh, I think it's called... Uh, the Best American Poetry 2023. Yeah. Oh, my bad, man. <laughs> Tell us about it. How does that feel, man? How does it feel? To you to... Now, this is not the first time you've been anthologized, right? No, it's not the first time I've been anthologized, but it's the first time I've appeared in this anthology. And, uh, I mean, I've always thought I've been writing the best American poetry, but not actually to have someone uh, else <laughs> confirm it in some small way. Uh, I'm very grateful to the editors, uh, Elaine Equi, the guest editor, and to David Lehman, the series editor, for including uh, this poem, which is a kind of deeply uh, ironic poem. So. <laughs> Well, say more than the least and read us that one, too. All right. You asked for it. Amen. After the exhibition, they came back to the hotel after one of their best days, walking around a city they had come to enjoy. It had been raining, and their clothes were wet, and the room was cold, and he raised the heat and shivered naked under the covers, while across the room she charged her phone and texted her children. The look in her eyes was always beautiful to him, and he knew he looked at her too much. She told him so. Warming, he was waiting for her to get up from the desk with its electric socket, even though there was one next to the bed. Rising, she said she felt a little sick, then sat in the bathroom, posting pictures of paintings they saw at the exhibition at the museum. Before opening the door, she took one of herself in the mirror. In a few minutes, many friends liked it, and one fellow commented, she looked like a masterpiece. All jokes aside, man, uh, your work is a, is a is a masterpiece. It's I can remember where I was, uh, right? I think it was in 2020, and uh, Garrison Keillor 
anthology, uh, the, the yellow rain slicker. And, uh, that's what, I mean, that was the poem where you just, you find those kindred spirits, you find that one poem that lights you up. Where it's like, I got to find everything this guy did, you know, the, everything that's ever done. Um, the lightning, your voice, uh, let me bore you with some technical questions real quick. <laughs> um, how, how did you find your voice and how do you maintain such intensity with it? In my poetry, you mean, yes. or, uh, <laughs> uh, I, uh, I, I guess I've been tuning it up ever since I was a teenager. And yes. so, you know, it's something I've been working on. Uh, uh, I mean, I've studied contemporary poetry. I've studied, you know, the, the classics. Um, you know, I feel like, uh, my curiosity has led me to a lot of poets from uh, different uh, countries and cultures over time. Um, I've picked up the things I feel like I've, I, 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 I've, I've needed. I mean, there's a kind of process, sort of a intellectual, creative, um, imaginative osmosis that occurs when you uh, when you immerse yourself in reading. And I find that that's what's kind of kept me going that uh in fact right now i feel like i need to immerse myself in some old poets or some new poets or something to get the juices going again that uh, you know i've gone as far as life's going to take me and i need some poetry to push me forward to wind us down it's uh on a sad note but some of those poems and the poet that got us through dark times uh fred chapel passed away yesterday and and i understand we just talked about this we were both you will far more so close to Fred. Um, could you give us some impressions today in honor of him before we sign off? Yeah, uh, for one thing, I was really glad last year I hosted a uh, tribute to Fred on our campus and brought his former students, some of them, to campus. And it was like one of the greatest experiences for me personally. Some of these people I knew, uh, they were my students also, but some of them were from uh, way back, like Rodney Jones, who uh, a remarkable poet, a, a genius really. And uh, Rodney uh, um, uh, came and uh, and spoke about Fred and read his work and read work and uh, uh, David Blair, Maria Hummel, Leanne Couch, uh, so many others came through here, Drew Perry, others to uh, pay tribute to uh, Fred. And uh, that was, and I think Fred really uh, appreciated this. And as I joked at the time, only a man as tough as Fred could take so much praise. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Fred man. was a tough guy. You know, he was. Fred was a tough guy. And he wrote, like a dozen novels, he wrote a dozen books of poetry, he wrote uh, uh, science fiction, he wrote books of stories, he wrote collections of essays, yep. uh, he won uh, a prize from the French government, uh, the French Arts and Letters Association for his work, uh, he uh, won the T.S. Eliot Prize, the I Icon Prize, and the Bollingen Prize for his poetry. Uh, no small accomplishments. No. Uh, Poet Laureate of North Carolina uh, uh, for several for several sessions. Uh, he did us all very proud. You know, I think he has a title in which uh, that uh, uh, the filmmaker Michael Frierson used for a documentary he made on Fred. Uh, and the title is I Am One of You Forever. And that's the title of one of Fred's remarkable books. I Am One of You Forever. Forever. Yeah. And Stuart, you are too, man. I mean that. We're going to have you back on real soon, boss. Uh, 
anytime you need to get on the air, the door is always open to you. All right. Well, thank you for inviting me once again, Clifford. I appreciate it. All right. And poet, author, and professor Stuart DeShell, it has been an honor and we will have you back soon. And up now on Dante's, we have the distinguished singer, songwriter, radio host, mom, and maker of sandwiches, Reese Palmer. Reese, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? I am fine and dandy like sour candy. And for once, we're not going to talk about this radio show. We're going to kick off this episode by talking about your radio show. So <laughs> tell me the goods right up front, please, man. Uh, my show. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on your show. Um, my show is called Color Me Country Radio with Reese Palmer. It is on Apple Music and uh, every Saturday. And um, it is... It's it's my love letter to other artists of color in country and Americana music. And um, it was one of those things that happened during COVID. Um, I was home with my kids. I have two little ones, a now 12-year-old and a four-year-old. And um, they were a baby and an eight-year-old um, during COVID, but... I, um, you know, all, all my gigs were canceled. I just put a record out and, um, you know, I was at home trying to keep my sanity and make bread like everybody else. And um, this was also around the time that Lil Nas X had put out uh, Old Town Road and everybody was talking about, you know, black people in country music and if there were actual black people in country music and that kind of thing. And I knew that what people were talking about, like the depth that people were going to was like really shallow and that there was a lot more to the story than just five artists starting with Charlie pride. And so, um, it really was just like a project. Like it was just something that I just started doing. And it also coincided with the 50th anniversary of the release of Color Me Country, which was Linda Martell, who is the first black woman to ever play the Grand Ole Opry. To this day, she is still the highest charting black female on the Billboard country charts um, in, in 1968. And uh, it was the anniversary of the release of that album. And that's why I named the the show Color Me Country. And um, so I just wanted to talk to the artists that I knew and have them tell their stories and create a platform that people felt safe and people felt like they could be honest and there wasn't going to be any backlash or anybody, you know, with their eyebrow raised and that sort of thing. And so that's what it that's how it started. And um, I just started calling people that I knew and um, finding people on the internet and on social media and reaching out to them just cold mm -hmm. and having conversations much like what we're doing right now. To make that safe space, <clears throat> not just for yourself, but for others, that's not free. And uh, money is to has been <laughs> historically hard for artists to get the hands on anyway, but even so more so than today. And you're making that easier with your artist grant pro uh, program. Tell me more about that. 
So like a year after the show debuted, um, one of my fellow hosts on Apple Music, uh, who hosts a show that you saw a show on NPR actually called Hanging and Singing, um, Kelly McCartney had a nonprofit and um, through that nonprofit had started a grant fund called the Rainy Day Fund named after Ma Rainey. Oh, nice. And uh, it was for artists of color, LGBTQ artists and um, differently abled people, artists. Mm -hmm. um, and Kelly and I got to be friends. Kelly is the reason why I'm at Apple in the first place. And one day I just get an email from Kelly, like, would you want to start something for Color Me Country? And I was like, yes. Cause you know, like being an independent, I've been an independent artist for now 15 years and um, I was signed and then I went independent. It's expensive to do this. And it's expensive to do all the things that you need to do in order to compete. And, um, you know, I think that people forget that. Like you just see what's on social media and you're like, oh, you're doing so well. Things are so good. And it's like, it costs money. To yeah. And to, you know, put a show together, to get your outfit together, to do what, get your website together, all that stuff, it costs. And so, you know, I can remember when I lived in Nashville and I was in my twenties and I wasn't signed yet and I was still trying to get signed and like, you know, my parents would drop like a $200, $500 check in the mail every once in a while. And it would like be the difference between, okay, so y'all, we get to eat today. Or like, uh -huh. it's a, you know, the rent is going to get paid or whatever. And so I believe that little micro grants like that can encourage someone to keep going. Um, it's just like it's it's I call them postcards from God. Like they're yes. like little things that you need just to keep going. And so the grant fund issues grants from five hundred to a thousand dollars. Um it there's no like major application or anything because I hate that. Yeah. Like, that you have to do like these essays about why you deserve money or something. And it's just like, just give me the money. So um Basically, you just give us, give us your banking information and you get a check. And so um, we started this in December of 20, December of 2020. Mm -hmm. And um, to date, we have raised over $150,000. We have granted over 70 artists. Um, with that money, I've been able to take 14 artists now to Europe all expenses paid to play um, a festival, Americana festival in uh, London. And uh, yeah, and we've been able to do shows. We've been able to do like all kinds of stuff. And like the artists that we've been able to grant have completed albums. They've made videos. Some of them have gotten dental work. Like mm. whatever it is that you need the money for, like mm. I don't care. Like just mm. get it there for you. And tell us the name of this uh, foundation again. Sure. It's called Color Me Country. Um, the Color Me Country Foundation. So if you go to colormecountry.com, um, you can, there's a page where you can donate the money. And um, yeah. And you can see your money in action on a regular basis. 
Now, I want to know who influenced you to to create programs like this, and we already heard some of them, but who who influenced your sound, uh, and how do they continue to influence your sound today? Oh my gosh, I'm like, huh. I'm a product of my parents' record collection for sure. Um, and my parents lived, listened to everything. It was really eclectic. So like, I grew up listening to James Taylor, Phoebe Snow, um, Winona, um, Dolly Parton, Jamie O'Neill, like just Trisha Yearwood, people like that. And so like my music is Shaka Khan. And so like my music is a mixture of R&B and country and gospel. And, um, you know, my first album would be considered like a pop country, very mainstream country record. And the music that I've been making since then has veered a little bit more towards, I guess, what we call Americana now, um, because it's a little bit more eclectic than that. And uh, I don't know, I call it Southern Soul because it's like yeah, yeah, there's elements of the South in there and there's um, a lot of soul and that sort of thing. So I think that encapsulates it the best. Yeah. Now... You've got a few albums out, as you've mentioned. Um, tell us about those albums and where we can find more about you online. Sure. Um, all of my music is available on streaming. Um, my first album is only available on Apple Music for now, um, but I'm going to change that very soon. Uh, I have released to date... Let me see. There's self-titled Breezy Palmer that came out in 2007. Um, there's a children's album that came out in 2013 called Best Day Ever. I released an EP called The Backport Session in 2015. Um, there's a Christmas project that I released also in 2015 called Three. Um, and then there is Revival that came out in 2019. The worst timing in the world. <laughs> <laughs> right? Or maybe the best. That's when you needed Jesus the most, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I'm working on a project right now that uh, will be out by the end of the year. All right. Do we have a title for that or are we holding that close to the best? Um, no, I'll talk about it. It's a tentatively titled Survivor's Joy. All right, right. And uh, yeah, and I'm currently writing and we'll get into the studio early summer. But nice. I'm excited. Yeah, and I told you earlier in the show we're going to have you back. Now I know that's for a fact. Yeah. Um, another fact is, and I'm not going to let you glaze over this a little bit, that children's album. Um, tell us about more about that children's album and what, what motivates you to, to do that. Well, okay, so Best Day Ever um, was inspired by my oldest daughter, who was an infant at the time. Um, she was born in 2011, and her name is Grace. Oh, and uh, she, my first baby, um, right after I'd gotten married and, you know, she was, she is still my world. And um, I started taking her to baby music classes uh -oh. and realized, <laughs> like, for the first time ever, started listening to kids music and realized that there was some really great stuff, like some really well-written, um, well-sung, and just very 
complex music that was being made for children. And um, specifically, there was a record that inspired me. It was called Putumayo Acoustic Playground. Somebody gave it to her for her birthday, and uh, we used to listen to it all the time. And I found myself listening to it when she wasn't in the car. Okay. Um, you know, and they were like just these really great artists, Dan Zanes and Justin Roberts, and um, and 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 so many people that I'm forgetting their names, but like just really just incredible children's music. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, I could do this. Like this would actually be really fun. And um, it came at a time when I really needed something like that. I had just left Nashville. I just left my record company. And it was just like this really dramatic, um, awful (laughs) time. And, you know, I had this baby and like just a very different life than what I had been living just a year prior. And I wanted to... I needed something to motivate me to make music again because I was very disillusioned with the music business. And um, it was a week in the studio with three people that I just adore, um, Blue Miller, Deanna Walker, and Rick Beresford. And I had the baby crawling around on the floor while we were writing. And we just wrote from her perspective. And it was the most fun I've had making a project ever. And um, and like I said, we completed it in a week. She was actually in the vocal booth with me in her little pack and play, sleeping yeah. while we cut vocals. And it was just, it was magical. And so uh, it's one of my favorite records that I've ever done. The song uh, we're playing from it is very apropos to you coming out of a dark place to teaching how to a child to stay out of one. Uh, not, not Afraid of the Dark is the song we're playing, correct? Yes. And yes. just give us a little tidbit on that. So, I mean, I think you actually described it perfectly. Like it was, um, like I said, I was coming out of a really bad, uncomfortable time in my life. And uh, we wrote this song. It was the last song that we wrote. And it took us like 15 minutes to write it, which, you know, as a songwriter, like sometimes things are like real easy, like they come and you knock them out. And then sometimes things take years. This was one of those things that just kind of, I felt like I channeled it. Yeah. Anything. And um, it's about on the surface, it's about a child being afraid of the dark and not being afraid of the dark and knowing that they have someone that cares about them on the other side of the door and that's listening to them and that's praying for them and thinking about them. But like, really it was like me talking to God and um, and knowing that like, I've got all this love surrounding me. I've got all this care surrounding me. And so like, there's really no reason to be afraid. There's really no reason not to make music anymore. There's no reason not to put yourself back out there because like you're the net will be there if you take the jump. And so that's what the song is about. And so I just, I feel like this really, I love that song. Rizzy Palmer, it's been a divine pleasure to speak with you and I cannot wait to do it again. Now let's listen to Not Afraid of the Dark. 
tricks on my mind and makes me forget that everything's fine. I can't start to believe it's scary bad dreams and monsters and shadows and things I can't see, but I've got the light of the moon. I've got stars in the sky. Someone who loves me all of the time. Someone who hears the prayers of my heart. So. Up now on Dante's Old Self, I have the divine pleasure of sitting down with poet, photographer, creator of Poets Baseball Cards, and the executive editor of the Museum of Americana, Justin Ham. How are you this evening? 
Well, Cliff, I'm doing pretty well, except for uh, it's about negative six out right now in Missouri. And so it's freezing. Wind chill is about 25 below. I haven't been out of the house in about four days. So if I come off a little crazy, man, you know, it's because uh, I haven't seen the outdoors in, in, in a little bit. So, but other than that, I'm great. <laughs> other a little touch of cabin fever. It's all good, man. Yeah. All, all work and no play makes Justin a dull boy, <laughs> you know? Well, let's jump into this with uh, thin toes in the ground. The Midwest, it's frozen, but uh, you love it beyond the sub-zero temperatures, and it factors a great deal into all of your uh, work uh, creatively. Uh, tell me about that. How does place factor into your work? Yeah, man. Well, uh, the Midwest, like a lot of kids who grew up here, um, the first thing I thought as a kid was, I can't wait to get the hell out of here. Like, you know, I thought whatever was happening in the world, um, sure wasn't happening in the Midwest. And I just thought that this is a holding place to be until I figure out the real place I'm going to go to like do stuff in my life. But that's not how stuff works. I met my wife, you know, we got married, we had a kid. Uh, after a while I lost my mom, which was sad. We had, you know, another baby, you get your roots settled in there and you realize after a while, this dream or this thought of like, I'm going to go somewhere else to make my way. You know, once you get up to around 30, 32, something like that. It just, it's not that reality anymore. And um, so I had to think really hard. I'd never really been given Midwestern examples of writers as a kid. I didn't know a lot of them. I did, I guess, but I didn't, I didn't make that connection. Like, you know, in elementary school, we read people like, uh, you know, Sherwood Anderson or not elementary, but high school, Sherwood yeah. Anderson, uh, folks like that, you know? And so I, I did have that in my head, but I never really connected it to something you could do. And so at some point I just realized, man, like, this is where I'm going to be. This is where I'm going to make my life. I better try to make some peace with it and understand it. And what I found was that as I stopped and started looking around, I quit waiting for the place to tell me what to write about. And instead I started looking deeper and examining things more closely. And when I did that, uh, that's when I figured out, holy cow, I'd been missing so much, you know, the people, the, the landscape, the, the issues that are happening in the Midwest. They're the they're world and in, in, in country issues um, in microcosm. You know, there's no other place where the rural and the urban you know conflict is more readily uh, seen than right here. I mean, literally, you go outside of one of our big cities and you're in the middle of a cornfield. The most you know rural people you're going to meet, and they're not they're hardly anywhere from a city. So you know, once that stuff started to come together for me, um, then I just saw that. Uh, this is who I am. And if I'm going to write an authentic voice and, and write authentic things, then the Midwest is is going to be a part of that. And so it spilled over into my poetry. I started to take pictures, you know, in the back roads of this region, did a book of photographs uh, with, with those kinds of images in it. And really just, I, I realized um, not to use like a really super corny Midwestern metaphor, but you can harvest you know, the stuff in this region and, and there's a lot to think about. And I think people miss out on that a lot. You want to make Pete sure, honestly, and I've seen this as withdrawn drew me to your career through your, uh, interview that's out now in the blue mountain review, but you have a passion to give back and, and to, uh, make sure that what you, what you missed to the, you know, growing up, maybe in those formative years, others don't, that's your, the culture of the Midwest, but also beyond and you did that in a deceptively easy way, and you made that genius your own with the poet baseball cards. Tell me about that enigmatic endeavor. 
Yeah. Well, um, I don't know. As a kid, I was into baseball cards and baseball players were every bit the heroes that you think about, you know, to American kids. Um, I was, I played baseball for a long time. I played up through my freshman year at college till I hurt my arm. Um, you know, it was a big, a big part of my life and all those vintage baseball cards from, you know, the late seventies, I inherited some of those from my uncles, you know, so those cards from the late seventies, all through the eighties and nineties are just, they're emblazoned in my head. And so online on Facebook, I'm into a lot of vintage baseball card groups and stuff, and they're always posting those old cards. And I love, I mean, I, I get so nostalgic for that look and all those players. I mean, even, you know, the, the guy that hit 225 and came off the bench, I know him and I know all of the stats and I know what card he was on. And those are my favorites. And so the algorithm being as intelligent as it is, it kept advertising to me, you know, this app that allowed you to turn different things into vintage baseball cards. And um, I'm not always the quickest to pick up on, you know, what the universe is trying to tell you. So I, I won't lie. I had to see that juxtaposition of poets in my feed and then the baseball cards in my feed, <laughs> you know, probably 30 times before a little light went on. And I went, maybe this was made to be. And I will tell you the truth. Uh, initially, I didn't see it as like something that I was going to do like broadly. I didn't. I mean, I wanted to make a lot of cards, but selfishly, I was just thinking about having a collection of them. Like, how cool would it be? Because really, poets are kind of like the baseball players were to me when I was a kid. Poets are these, um, you know, highly romantic figures the same way I would have romanticized Andre Dawson or somebody when I was a kid, one of my favorite players. You know, I think of of poets today in that same way. Ted Kuzer, we were lucky enough to make a card of. I mean, that guy's every bit of an MVP baseball player you know, in terms of what he's met in my life, you know, at this point. And so I just wanted to make them to collect myself. And sometimes, you know, that's the best way to make art is to make something that you want completely, you know, um, from the uh, desire standpoint to make something that you think is cool and not really worry about what other people, I never even thought one time, like, I wonder if this will catch on, but I just made the first couple and, and I posted them and then people just got really excited about it right away. And, and I was telling you this before, um, the joy, you know, that people started to get out of it was really, really cool. The way they like would stop online and celebrate this one poet. And, and you know, suddenly all these people come out and be like, yeah, what a great poet. And they'd be saying all these positive things about him. And sometimes I think we need a reason to stop and celebrate, especially, man, some of these guys who are, or ladies or whoever it might be, who are, you know, really kicking ass and and making art all the time and traveling the back roads and bringing it to people. And, you know, all these people think it, but they don't always stop and, you know, make it public that, wow, I really admire what you're doing. So, you know, that's kind of how it came about. And then once I start starting to get popular and people buying into it, then I was like, I got to keep doing this. You know, I got to, I got to try to spread this out and give that experience to um as many poets as as i can you know these people that that i really admire the cards are a gorgeous place of nostalgia that nostalgia reaches out to the museum of americana um tell us about that journal and why now yeah so the in it's it's no secret in the last little while while that's uh you know, being critical of American things um, is pretty invoked. It really is. 
And I mean, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that that's not rightfully so. I think you and I both know um, that there are a lot of things about American culture right now that are, um, you know, frightening. And there are a lot of things about American culture that are really hard to deal with. But um, I also grew up here. And, you know, the way that I try to explain this to people is for all the, you know, the oppressors and the and the people that have uh, harmed others that are Americans, you know, the the people who fought against it and the people who accomplished things and the people who made great art and all these wonderful things, they're Americans too, you know? And, and so I want to celebrate the things within American culture that deserve to be celebrated. That doesn't mean that we don't criticize and it doesn't mean that we don't call out what's wrong. It just means that we also call out what's right. And, um, you know, we use our platform uh, to, to give a balanced picture, you know? And so I grew up, in the Midwest. And I grew up, you know, I had a Southern family as well from Kentucky. A lot of that, um, what's considered stereotypical, uh, American culture was deeply ingrained, you know, and I have a nostalgia for that, but I also recognize that you got to think your way through that and figure out an honest way to both be inspired by that, but also improve it, make it better and, and discard those aspects of it, which are not you know, worthy of where we should be going as a country. So that's where I was. And, um, I have always liked people who are able to like, I know you're a music guy too. And you, you dig, um, some Americana artists and stuff. I always loved the guys that could go or the, I use guys for people. And so, but you know, the artists, the Mm -hmm. fabulous artists that are able to go back into the, the folk tradition or the, whatever the historical tradition might be and take it, but also, make something new out of it you know so yeah i've heard i've heard this melody right in a folk song but what they've done with it transcends it and they've taken lyrics and made it into something that that applies to the here and now so that was the idea behind the the museum was people who would um you know write them out about american concerns but they would take it and they would try to make something out of it that matters to people now Something that matters to people now is drinking Guinness with the dead. Uh, all of the, what you just said about the museum, um, I found in your book, the honesty, the, uh, the, the, it's, it's not nostalgia as much as deep memory to me in your poetry is that for me, I feel like nostalgia sometimes sees it better than it was. And in your work, I never feel anything is razzle dazzled. It's still gorgeous. And I think that's a, that's a hard line to walk. Tell us about drinking Guinness with the dead and how you walked that fine line, sir. Man, I'm glad that you you picked up on that because it is. And uh, the question, you know, if I have some first readers on my work, right, the first questions that I ask them always are, is this too easy? And, you know, uh, have I dipped into sentimentality? Because it's very hard. I think you have to risk it, though. Um, you have to risk going there if you're going to write something with heart. So for me, this goes all the way back to, to graduate school. And I had some good uh, professors who recognized that uh, while I had talent as a writer, I had not tapped into whatever authentic thing I was trying to say. And my writing lacked a lot of heart. I wrote with a lot of um, irony. You know, it was it was fashionable at the time. You know, a lot of these magazines that were starting up, the first internet magazines and stuff were starting up. And everybody was writing these really ironic stories. It was like, um, if you know Donald Bartlemay, you know, but imagine him 
without the ingenuity. Like it really, you know, it was influenced by the Simpsons or things like that, you know, and not that, not that you can't write those things, but I knew that was not the kind of writer I wanted to be. I wanted to write some things with heart and I didn't have that. Everything that I was writing was lacking that it was, it was very um, flippant sometimes. And so I had a really, a good teacher who just said that to me and, and it took me some years and some heartbreak in my life and some difficult things to get that you know, infused into the writing that I was doing. And then really looking at the Midwest, that became a subject matter and and the poems deal with a a lot of those things. So, you know, I'm looking at different types of masculinity in the Midwest is a big theme for me. Family, um, you know, both, how do you deal with uh, difficult families? You know, how do families interact with each other? How do they maintain love while also dealing with their differences? You know, how do you process old trauma? that just seems like, you know, I used to think that I was the only person in the world that had trauma, right? You think that when you're younger and then you realize every single person has these things, you know, you're not the only one. And so looking at how you process those things and also um, being able to look around you also and celebrate, you know, some beauty and some joy. Celebration is, is a big one. And um, that's, I guess, maybe one thing I'm proud of in the book is that I manage, I hope I manage to balance some heartbreak and some dark things with some levity and some humor, uh, you know, and try to show a whole picture in my poems rather than just, you know, doing the saddest thing or doing the, the funniest thing, you know, balance is important. Well, Justin Ham, before I let you go, tell us where we can find drinking Guinness with the dead and keep up with you online. Yeah. So I'm at justinham.net. Uh, on all of the socials, if you want to learn about poet baseball cards, just go in and type in poet baseball cards. You will find us on, you know, pretty much every platform that you're looking for. And the museum of Americana is the museum of Americana.net. Those are all good places to look, uh, right now. If you're trying to get a copy of drinking Guinness with the dead, unfortunately, Amazon is the best place. Um, I will have copies. I will be at AWP folks. If any writers are going to be out there. I'll be hanging out with I-70 Review. I'll be hanging out with Spartan Press, uh, repping the baseball cards, repping myself as a writer, and also repping um, the the Museum of Americana and telling people about it. And I will have copies of the book on hand for you to get there. So um, otherwise, if you run a Google on my name and you're looking for some sample poems, then you can get those out there. All right, Justin, man. This has been a divine pleasure. We're going to have you back on to talk more about the way, the way you write and edit poetry. But I'm going to let you go at this moment before I keep you for the rest of the evening, boss. It's been a true pleasure to have you on. Yeah, thanks, brother. I really appreciate it. You know, um, it's a great show. I've listened to a bunch of episodes and uh, heard some of the folks that you have on, and, it, and it's super interesting. So what a pleasure to, to be able to talk about some of these things with you, and uh, I hope you have an excellent rest of the evening. And now let's take a break and hear Feeling Small by Wilder Adkins. Oh, Mama Cole says he's going. The time has come, pages turning When I was young, 
felt so small Still haven't learned feeling tall Drive all night to get home. You're lying there, skin and bone. Still making jokes, holding on. Oh, won't you sing me one last song? Father dear, why must you go? We're still sitting here with all your books, with all your interview comes straight to you from Paris, France with author, professor, and editor, Heather Hartley. Heather, how are you doing? I'm very well tonight. Thank you so much, Clifford. Merci beaucoup, as they say. So great to be here. And it's wonderful to have you. The uh, illustrious Stuart Deschelles introduced us recently, and I know some of the details of your life, but not all. So Let's start at the beginning. Give us the skinny on who in the world is Heather Hartley. <laughs> I'm uh, a longtime um, writer. I've been writing all of my life, uh, poetry and prose. Um, I'm an inveterate reader, passionate reader. Uh, one of the places that I turn and return to is the library, whatever country I'm in. I've been in France and Paris for over 20 years, but I've had the privilege of living also in Napoli, Italy, um, a little bit as a high school student in the UK. And then I grew up in the States in Charleston, West Virginia. And so everywhere I've gone, I've made sure to have a library card um, because reading is so key to my creative life um, as a writer. Um, so that's one of the things that really is, is an anchor in my life. I started off writing a daily diary when I was around seven or eight years old um, and from there it blossomed into poems and into journal writing as, as a high school student. And it was, uh, something that stayed with me. Writing has always been what I consider, I consider a great friend. Um, I got into the habit of writing daily and, um, it was not only a necessity, but also a comfort to, to return to the page, um, 
be at the page or the screen. Um, although I do have a pension for the page, old fashioned in that sense, you know, um, I keep journals still um, to this day and uh, magazines um, uh, as well. I love to read everything um, in that sense. So um, I've been teaching uh, for over 20 years. And once again, I've had this privilege of travel and, and teaching in the States and then in France and then in Britain. Um, and I'm an editor as well. I am an inveterate editor of my own work and work of others. And just having that um, frame of editing sometimes is really important, I think, in moving forward with our own work. Um, I would love to say that I everything that I write, boom, it comes out straight away. But in fact, sometimes it takes the revision with the idea of revising, revision. Um, I take that um, as part and parcel of, of who I am as well. I'm fascinated by travel. I've heard and 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 know several quotes and thoughts that all kind of tie into the idea that it's impossible to be racist and, and steeped in ignorance when you travel and see the world. Uh, you mentioned that you've lived in Europe for 20 years, but you grew up in West Virginia. Tell me a little bit more about how the, the process and act of traveling has enriched your life. Well, it's, it's wonderful because... Um, I started traveling at an early age. Um, my first trip to Europe was when I was 14 with a school trip, my junior high school trip, um, John Adams Junior High. And it was to um, Austria and Switzerland and Germany. And we didn't stay long in, ver in, in, in different places, but we had the opportunity, I had the opportunity to hear different languages, to see new customs and culture, try new food. Um, something that I'm still doing to this day is trying out all of the menu opportunities in France and Italy. Um, and it was through that that I got curious about um, living about other countries. I got really curious about how people live differently, um, the different kinds of books as well, everything um, around a new culture. And traveling has been a real passion for me from the beginning of my life. And um it's become a way of life for me as well because my partner of um, over 20 years is Neapolitan and he lives in Napoli and I live here in Paris. So our two-hour plane ride um, happens about once every month or six weeks we see one another and it's become a real rhythm to travel and it's become a real practice to figure out how to pack the suitcase um, because it includes books first and then pairs of boots. So um, I have to make room for both. And um, so for me, um, traveling has just been a, a part of who I am. My first job out of university was as an English language teaching assistant on the west coast of France in Nantes. And so really um, another level of interest and desire to to travel started at that point. And as you mentioned before, um, as you traveled, uh, you've been a consummate student and a consummate teacher. Um, let's expound on that traveling thing as far as education is concerned. What huge changes or differences can you see in American and European education? Um, that's such a great question. I think um, for one of the things is that um, in, in, in Europe, um, there's a different level of um, attention sometimes to detail of um, grammar. Not always, but um, sometimes there's a different, whereas um, 
in the United States, sometimes it's more about story. It's more about, I'm speaking of literature teaching and, and English, um, literature teaching and language. And um, there's also a different schedule to it. Um, so the time frames are different as well. But one of the things that brings uh, the two together, European teaching and American teaching, is this desire to learn. I've really had the chance to have students from all over the world um, at different stages in their academic careers. Um, and one of the things that, that brings us together and to come back to this idea is the page. And um, working with high school students in the summer um, in an intensive creative writing program where we would do um, poetry one week, nonfiction the next week, and fiction the next week. We were just talk about having to drink espresso. Um, definitely it was a time to drink espresso, but it really got us back to the, our own page and the page of others. Um, and then recently I was teaching this last semester, I taught a graduate seminar called Psychogeography, which brings me to one of my um, wonderful idea, one of my wonderful thoughts about Paris is this idea of walking, psychogeography, walking and writing in the city. That's basically what we were doing. And so um, teaching in that sense was very much an experiential moment to be with students literally in the city and having the city as the classroom. So I find that to be something that you can bring to um, students, whether there's a European sensibility to your American sensibility, there's that bridge um, with the student and the student's interest and keenness on learning. Now, as a life learner and a lover of the page, uh, I want to know about the books you have out now and the ones you have on the way. Yes. So I my first collection is called Knock Knock, and it's a poetry collection that's literally like um, an initial knock on the door of poetry. Uh, for me, it was like crossing a, crossing a threshold. Um, I spent a lot of uh, my time in my 20s just working on my writing, not necessarily sending it out for publication. Um, and so when I was ready to send out for publication, I really wanted to focus on having a, a collection uh, come together. And I shuffled and did some shuffling and things like that with the collection um, to, to find the 52-card pickup of how my collection would come together. And um, it ended up being framed in terms of my first collection in terms of cities, in terms of three cities in particular, Paris, Napoli, and then St. Petersburg, Russia. Um, Charleston, West Virginia also makes an appearance, as do some other cities, but it was really these three cities that guided what kind of the, the, the framing principle for, for this first collection. Um, and I so enjoyed the way I could play with language on the page. My second collection, Adult Swim Poetry Collection, um, kind of has two themes as, as departure points, and one of them is the sea, the importance of water, the beauty itself, it's sea, the sea creatures, um, the beach. And the other one um, is uh, about a, the current theme of struggling with physical illness. So both of those themes, there are some correlations between them and some overlap, um, but both of those were really important in my second collection. In addition to one um, section that I call street sonnets, where I, I would go to different cities and write sonnets um, on the streets. So I went to, to my hometown of Charleston, West Virginia to do that. I went to Rome, uh, went, uh, 
did it here. Um, I did it in Napoli, and then I did it in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And one of the great things I can encourage to everyone who's listening is to write a street sonnet. Uh, you do have to have some streets, so it might be hard out in the countryside. But, um, you know, it's something to really consider. Um, I went to that when I was having a bit of a writer's block to find a way out of writer's block and get back to the page. And one of that was to spend time walking, which is important. So Now, you're going to read a poem to us from your second book. And I hear it's about mermaids and more. Could you tell us a little bit about the the organization, the technique of the poem and what it's about? Sure, absolutely. Um, for me, Serenka um, kind of represents the span of my work and in some ways is like an artist statement. It's a it's about a mermaid, but it's also about a job interview. Um, and it's also about sitting in. It's about feeling about belonging and being comfortable with oneself and with others, um, finding home and being comfortable there and a sense of being at home with yourself. Um, and it, it finishes the collection and it really, for me, also serves as a as a pivotal point for my my third collection of poetry that I'm working on right now, in addition to a novel I'm working on. So, Okay. Well, let's dive into the poem. Okay. Serenka. I was at a job interview the other day and they asked if I wasn't doing what I was doing, what I would like to do. And I told them, be a mermaid. And they looked at me like, what the? Whose stick is she trying to shake anyway? This is a job interview, not a joke. And that's when I said, really, I'm not kidding. It might not show that I have experience with that on my resume, but some things don't fit on the page. Huh, they laughed. She says she wants to be a sea cow, basically, and drink from shells. Like she knows what she's saying. I didn't think I'd get the job after this and think I didn't want it to begin with. But you don't have to not listen when someone tells you stuff. I mean, they were the first ones I told about this, and it makes you think maybe you think too much sometimes, and that whatever skills it takes to be a mermaid, I can learn them. You see, I told them, I can swim and dive and decide later about drowning the sailors. Sailors are useful and sometimes cute. And not every mermaid has to do that killer sea singing, and any luring I'd keep to myself. I applied for your job because there's nothing tempting about it, and I'm good at hiding things. Well, they said, we don't need someone who wants to not be part of our team. We're about industry and overtime, not sea cows. Don't call them sea cows, I said. Call a name a name. I would not tattoo Lorelei rocks on my arm, for example, if I get this job. I would promise to not talk to the fish in the fish tank much and to not wear revealing miniskirts, oh, the fins. Lady, they said, we've got a lot of candidates to choose from and we're just saying no, discrimination in the workplace. But sounds like you would rather be a sea monster and stuff. And if you come here, we'd have to deal with complaints and police reports because hiring an aquatic creature these days can be tricky. It sounds like you're talking about giving all this up, they said, to be fusiform. It's not practical to not have feet. About some things they were right, and for sure I would spend time at work messaging pirate friends and doing my own stuff, because sometimes in life you have to go in the direction you have to go, and sometimes that's straight to the sea, your arms steering waves and onward 
the estuaries, Sirenka, made of the wave, sun on your back. This is immense. This is not somewhere else. Hey, I said, look out the window one up. Repeat after me. Rise, rise, rise. And for us to rise to the occasion, how do we keep up with you online and find more of your work? Thank you for asking. My website is www.heatherhartleyinc.com. And I'm on Instagram, also at Heather Hartley Inc. Inc. Facebook at Heather Hartley. And for my books, you can find them um, through my publishers online or other online booksellers, or certainly order them from your local independent bookshop. Well, Heather Hartley, it has been a divine pleasure to spend this time with you. And as your new books come out, please let me know. We'll have you back on the show. Thank you so much for your time. Merci beaucoup. Thank you, Clifford. Have a beautiful day. You too. Thank you. And that's it, folks. Thanks for sitting in with me, Clifford Brooks, on this episode of Dante's Old South. Again, thank you, NPR and WTC, Lucid House Publishing, The Red Phone Booth, and The Crown. And last but not least, thank you for hanging out with me this hour. It means the world to me. Y'all stay cool. See you next month.